As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 17. Jimi Hendrix, A West Coast Seattle Boy, Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1 of this two-part series, you should probably pause this episode now and go listen to it so you're not a little lost. By late 1965, Jimi had settled in Greenwich Village in New York City, where he set up a new musical group called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. They played various area nightclubs, and this is where Jimmy's next big break came. Linda Keith, a British model and the girlfriend of the Rolling Stones' guitarist Keith Richards spotted Jimmy playing at the Cheetah Club in early 1966. She approached him and invited him to an after-party, where she soon discovered that underneath this guitar god stage persona was a shy and charming guy who was dealing with some self-esteem issues and a severe lack of food. She wanted to help him after realizing just how much star potential that he had. She lent him one of Keith Richards' guitars, which was a white Fender Stratocaster. Kathy would soon go on to invite several well-known managers and editors to see Jimmy play. The first was Andrew Oldham, the manager of the Rolling Stones, but Jimmy gave a weak performance during the show and Oldman wasn't very impressed. The next person to see Jimmy play was producer Seymour Stein, the man who later discovered Madonna. Jimmy gave an awesome performance, but he quickly became overcome with emotion and just plain badassery when he smashed the borrowed Stratocaster on stage. This really pissed off Linda Keith, and not wanting to be involved in an impending fight, Seymour Stein fled before he could work something out with Jimmy. Undeterred, he got another guitar, and Linda then invited Chaz Chandler to a gig at the Café Wa to see Hendrix play. Chaz Chandler was the bass player turned manager of The Animals. This was the third and final charm. Chaz almost immediately realized that Hendrix had an almost limitless star power that was just waiting to be discovered and put out to the public. Chaz convinced him to fly to London, where he would quit the animals and manage the guitarist's budding career. On September 23rd of 1966, the two took off from New York to London. It was mid-flight when Chaz suggested a stage name change for the rising star and the name Jimi Hendrix was born. Chandler soon organized auditions to form Jimmy's band and settled on a power trio format for the band. Jimmy would handle guitar and vocal duties, and the other two slots would be filled by guitarist Noel Redding, who reluctantly accepted a position playing bass, and a whirlwind drummer by the name of Mitch Mitchell. The Jimmy Hendrix experience was born. Hendrix, ever in need of cash, began playing small gigs, and that's where he met Kathy Etchingham, a DJ and hairdresser, it reportedly took Jimmy one line to pick her up when he said, I think you were beautiful. They would soon spend that night together in Jimmy's hotel room, where that next morning the pair was confronted by a raging former lover of Jimmy's who reportedly threatened to smash his only guitar over his skull. 
Kathy Etchingham would not be deterred by this, however, and she soon became Jimmy's regular girlfriend in London and stuck with him during the recording process of that first Are You Experienced record. They reportedly led a quiet life during that period, playing Monopoly and Twister and frequently eating mashed potatoes. The debut single, Hey Joe, a cover, dropped and was followed by another, this time an original Jimi Hendrix song, the iconic Purple Haze. The success of these two singles soon earned the Jimi Hendrix experience a spot playing at the legendary Monterey International Pop Festival. The trio took the stage on the afternoon of June 18, 1967. Rolling Stone magazine wrote of the performance, It was an orgasmic explosion of singing feedback, agitated stretches of jazzy improvisation, and an explosive rhythm and blues guitar. Hendrix, egged on by Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell's rhythmic frenzy, drove wild things head-on into a wall of white noise. Jimmy would set his guitar ablaze after a rendition of Wild Thing and then smashed it to pieces on stage. After this event, the Jimi Hendrix experience quickly became impossible to ignore. The first LP hit shelves in August of 1967 and was titled Are You Experienced? Critics were initially unenthused, with Rolling Stone summing up their review of the album by stating, Despite Jimmy's musical brilliance and the group's total precision, the poor quality of the songs and inanity of the lyrics too often get in the way. Above all, this record is unrelentingly violent and lyrically inartistically violent at that. Many disagreed with the critics and appreciated Jimmy's brew of psychedelia, hard rock, blues, and aggressive funk. This album would ultimately spend 106 weeks on the Billboard 200 chart and eventually went on to sell more than 5 million copies in the U.S. alone. It sold 1 million copies within 7 months of being released. In 2005, this record was one of 50 recordings that were chosen by the Library of Congress in recognition of its cultural significance to be added to the National Recording Registry. This debut album was loaded with songs that today are regarded as total classics. Hey Joe, which became one of Jimmy's most heavily requested songs, but never actually made the charts upon its debut on May 1st, 1967. Purple Haze, though thought to describe an acid trip, actually comes from a trippy dream Hendrix once had and was written before Jimmy ever tried acid or LSD. Manic Depression, which Hendrix described as Ugly Times Music, and once said that it was about a cat that wished he could make love to music instead of the same old everyday woman. The Wind Cries Mary, which is a soft ballad that demonstrates Hendrix's ability to write thoughtful lyrics and subtle melodies, was actually written after a fight Hendrix had with his girlfriend at the time, and it all started over Jimmy telling her that her mashed potatoes were too chunky. Foxy Lady was actually written about Heather Taylor, a London socialite who later married Roger Daltrey of The Who. Many cite this track as the prototype for heavy metal bands like Black Sabbath. Lyrically speaking, this song could be compared to the experience of Lithophane Pridian, but it was never actually confirmed. Take, for instance, these lyrics. Cute little heartbreaker, a sweet little lovemaker, and a lady that Jimmy says, got to be mine, all mine. The song Red House would be released on the UK album, but did not see an official release in the US until it appeared on a 1969 compilation. An unusual feature of this particular recording is that it does not include a bass guitar track. Noel Redding instead played rhythm guitar with his equalization set strongly in favor of bass tones. This is Hendrix's only original 12-bar blues song. Reviewing the album in 1967, 
Melody Maker praised its artistic integrity and the experience's varied use of tempo. NME's Keith Altham said it is a brave effort by Hendrix to produce a musical form which is original and exciting. Jimi Hendrix released their second album, Axis, Bold as Love, on December 1st of 1967. The album's scheduled release date was almost delayed when Hendrix lost the master tape of Side 1 of the LP when he left it in the backseat of a London taxi. With the deadline looming, Hendrix, Chaz Chandler, and engineer Eddie Kramer remixed most of Side 1 in a single overnight session, but they could not match the quality of the lost mix of If Six Was Nine. This album featured only about two songs that would ever be played live, Little Wing and Spanish Castle Magic. Spanish Castle Magic was actually inspired by the club dance hall named Spanish Castle in Des Moines, where Jimmy played a few times when he was younger. Q Magazine wrote in a retrospective review that the album dazzles as the experience curates a genre probably short-lived because nobody else could play it. Critics also found Axis, Bold as Love, to be the least memorable of the experience's three studio releases. While performing in England, Hendrix built himself up quite a following among the country's rock royalty, which included the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, and Eric Clapton, all becoming great admirers of his work. On February 12, 1968, Hendrix performed at the Seattle Center Arena, a venue known for its not-so-great acoustic qualities. Tom Robbins wrote in the Seattle countercultural newspaper Helix, Listening to rock in the arena is like making love in a file cabinet. It's a study in frustration. He had plans the next day to play at his former high school, Garfield, but his equipment wasn't available, so he instead gave a short speech. He was then given a ceremonial key to the city of Seattle after this speech. The band wouldn't return again to Seattle until September 6 of 1968 at the somewhat better Seattle Center Coliseum, a venue that the band would actually return to again on the 23rd of May of 1969. Jimmy's final album as part of the Jimi Hendrix experience, Electric Ladyland, was released in North America on the 16th of October 1968 and released in the UK nine days later. Electric Ladyland features the hit all Along the Watchtower, which was written by Bob Dylan. This became the band's highest-selling single and their only U.S. Top 40 hit, which peaked at number 20. Bassist Noel Redding later recalled of the process recording this album, There were just tons of people in the studio. You couldn't move. It was a party, not a recording session. Redding, who had formed his own band in mid-1968 by the name of Fat Mattress, had found it increasingly difficult to continue to fulfill his commitments with the experience, so Hendrix played many of the bass parts on this album. Though it has also been stated by Eddie Kramer, the producer and engineer on Electric Ladyland, that Redding had gone to the nearby pub and got too drunk to play, so Jimmy ended up playing bass on All Along the Watchtower. Despite popular myths, this album was actually partly recorded in England and on West 44th Avenue in New York City at the record plant. By mid-November of 1969, this album had reached number one in the U.S., spending two weeks atop the pop charts. Electric Ladyland confounded contemporary critics. Reviews praised some of its songs, but felt the album lacked structure and sounded too dense. Melody Maker called it mixed up and muddled, with the exception of All Along the Watchtower, which the magazine called a masterpiece. 
Robert Christgau was more enthusiastic, however, in Stereo Review regarding it as an explosive showcase of rock's most important recent innovation, the heavy guitar aesthetic, and an integrated work in itself in more ways than one. According to author Michael Heatley, most critics agree that the album was the fullest realization of Jimmy's far-reaching ambitions. Electric Ladyland has been featured on many greatest album lists, including a number 10 ranking on Classic Rock Magazine's list of the 100 greatest rock albums ever, and number 37 on the Times' 100 best albums of all time. A new 50th anniversary edition was released on November 28, 2018. It features Hendrix's originally intended cover instead of the controversial cover featuring a group of naked women, and it comes as a deluxe box set with either a Blu-ray disc and three CDs or a Blu-ray disc and six LPs. The Blu-ray includes a 5.1 surround mix by Eddie Kramer and a high-resolution version of that album remaster. The remastering was done by Bernie Grundman from the original Master Tapes. Shortly after the Jimi Hendrix Experience played their third gig in Seattle on May 29, 1969, the band would dissolve. Jimmy found himself playing in various groups that started billing themselves sometimes as the Gypsy Sun and Rainbows or as Sky Church. 1969 also found Hendrix being the world's highest paid rock musician. That August, he headlined the Woodstock Music and Art Fair. 32 acts performed outdoors despite sporadic and intense rainfall. For Jimmy's Woodstock performance, he added rhythm guitarist Larry Lee and conga players Juma Sultan and Jerry Velez. The band rehearsed for less than two weeks before this performance, and according to Mitch Mitchell, they never connected musically. Before arriving at the festival, Jimmy had heard reports that the size of the audience had grown enormously, which kind of concerned him, as he did not enjoy performing for very large crowds. He was an important draw for Woodstock, and although he accepted substantially less money for the appearance than his normal fee, he was the festival's highest paid performer. Jimmy decided to move his midnight Sunday slot to Monday morning to close out the show, and the band ended up taking the stage at around 8 o'clock in the morning, which by that time, Hendrix had been awake for more than 72 hours. The audience, which peaked at an estimated 400,000 people, was reduced to only 30 or 40,000, many of whom had waited to catch a glimpse of Hendrix before leaving during his performance. The festival MC Chip Monk, introduced the group as the Jimi Hendrix Experience, but Hendrix spoke up and clarified, We decided to change the whole thing around to call it Gypsy Sun and Rainbows. For short, it's nothing but a band of gypsies. Hendrix's performance included an incredible rendition of the national anthem. There were copious amounts of feedback, distortion, and sustain to imitate the sounds made by rockets and bombs. Contemporary political pundits described his interpretation as a statement against the Vietnam War. Three weeks later, Hendrix said, We're all Americans. It was like, go America. We play it the way the air is in America today. The air is slightly static, see? Immortalized in the 1970 documentary film Woodstock, his guitar-driven version would become forever associated with those turbulent times. After Woodstock, Jimmy reluctantly formed another trio, the Band of Gypsies, with his friend Billy Cox and the former drummer of the Electric Flag, Buddy Miles. Jimmy wasn't happy performing in this trio since he preferred larger ensembles which allowed him far more room for experimentation and improvisation. This stint working with Billy Cox and Buddy Miles produced a live LP, though, which was intended to settle a two-year contract dispute between Jimmy and producer Ed Chalpin. 
The Band of Gypsies album was the only official live Hendrix LP made commercially available during his lifetime. It was released in April of 1970 by Capitol Records and reached the top 10 in both the United States and the UK. This trio ended in disaster, however, at a concert at Madison Square Garden on January 28, 1970. On that day, a third and final Band of Gypsies appearance took place. They performed during a music festival at Madison Square Garden benefiting the Anti-Vietnam War Moratorium Committee called the Winter Festival for Peace. American blues guitarist Johnny Winter was backstage before the concert. He later recalled of Hendrix, He came in with his head down, sat on the couch alone, and put his head in his hands. He didn't move until it was time for the show. Minutes after taking the stage, he snapped a vulgar response at a woman who had shouted a request for Foxy Lady. He then began playing Earth Blues before telling the audience, that's what happens when Earth fucks with space. Moments later, he briefly sat down on the drum riser before leaving the stage completely. Both Miles and Redding later stated that Jeffrey had given Hendrix LSD before the performance. Miles believed that Jeffrey gave Jimmy the drugs in an effort to sabotage the current band and to bring about the return of the original experienced lineup. Jeffrey fired Miles after the show and Cox quit, therefore ending the Band of Gypsies' short but memorable run. Jimmy later told Rolling Stone, I think the Madison Square Garden is like the end of a big long fairy tale, which is great. I think it's like the best ending I could possibly come up with. February saw Jimmy partially reunite with the experience lineup for some jams and recording sessions, but nothing concrete ever materialized. He was more preoccupied with personal problems, though, and on March 9, 1970, he found out the former love of his life, his ex-girlfriend Kathy, had gotten married. He flew from New York to London in a desperate attempt to win her back, assuring her that he was done with drugs and done with the shady friends that he had previously been involved with. He begged her to leave her new husband Ray for him. As one would expect, this didn't really work out for Jimmy. The 26th of July, 1970, saw Jimmy playing his hometown for what would come to be the final time. The venue was Sixth Stadium in the Rainier Valley. Jimmy first used his studio, Electric Lady, on June 15, 1970, when he had a jam session with Steve Winwood and Chris Wood. The next day, he recorded his first track there, Night Bird Flying. The studio officially opened for business on August 25th, with the grand opening party being held the following day. Immediately afterwards, Jimmy left for England. He would never return to the United States. He boarded an Air India flight for London with his old army buddy Jimmy Cox, joining Mitch Mitchell for a performance where they appeared as the headlining act of the Isle of Wight Festival. Early in September of 1970 found Jimmy on a European tour that he really did not want to be on. He was longing to jam and record at his new studio. September 2nd, he stopped a show in Denmark after three songs and told the crowd, I've been dead a long time. Four days later, Jimmy played his final concert at the Isle of Fairmarn Festival in Germany. He was met with booing and jeering for reportedly canceling a previous show the night before, but there was a torrential rainfall and a serious risk of Jimmy being electrocuted, which is completely understandable in my opinion. I wouldn't want to be electrocuted playing in the rain. That sounds awful. The trio traveled immediately to London following the festival. Days after arriving there, Jimmy had talked to his close friends and told them that he was planning on leaving his manager, Michael Jeffrey. 
September 16, 1970, saw Jimmy playing a jam session with Eric Burden and his new band War. Joining the jam for a few songs, it was said that his performance was uncharacteristically subdued. The next night, Jimmy was spending the night with his most recent lover, German painter Monica Danneman. It was the next morning that she found Jimmy unconscious in his bed, having choked on his own vomit in his sleep. He was rushed to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, where he was pronounced dead shortly thereafter. An autopsy was ordered, and the coroner concluded that Hendricks aspirated on his own vomit and died of asphyxia while intoxicated with barbiturates. Jimmy's body would be flown to Seattle on the 29th of September, and on October 1st, the family held a private memorial at Dunlap Baptist Church, and then the West Coast Seattle boy was laid to rest at Greenwood Cemetery in Renton, where his mother was also buried. There's quite a touching memorial marker there for him, and if you've never been, it's pretty cool to see, and I consider a rite of passage. Jimmy was given his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1991, and the next year, the Jimi Hendrix experience was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. November 27, 1992 would have been Jimmy's 50th birthday, and to honor that, Seattle named that day Jimi Hendrix Day, thanks in large part due to the work of his boyhood friend Sammy Drain. Woodland Park Zoo has a small plaque in his honor, and as a Garfield High School graduate, I would see his bust on display almost every day in the library. And you can find a statue of Jimi Hendrix playing guitar on Broadway, probably one of the most heavily photographed statues in the entire city of Seattle. It's on the east side of Broadway, north of the intersection with Pike Street, if you've never been and you want to see it. It's pretty awesome. Jimi Hendrix Park was named in 2006 and was opened on June 17th of 2017. This park was funded by city funds and donations from the Nisqually tribe and Jimmy's stepsister, Janie Hendrix. The James Marshall Jimi Hendrix United States Post Office in the Renton Highlands, about a mile from Hendrix's grave and memorial, was renamed in his honor in 2019. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include Biography.com, the Biographics channel on YouTube, Rolling Stone Magazine, JimiHendrix.com, History Link, and A Room Full of Mirrors by Charles R. Cross. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Episode 17, Jimi Hendrix, A West Coast Seattle Boy, Part 2. Episode 18 will be released next week and will be a special Thanksgiving episode focusing on massive foodstuffs of the Evergreen State. I'm really looking forward to that one. There's actually a special treat I'm going to put at the end. It's pretty cool. I'm glad I was able to find it and obtain permission to use it. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. That email address can also be found in the episode description in addition to the link to buy me a coffee, which offers you, the listener, the opportunity to support this show and to keep it going. One-time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you once again for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the whole. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. 
The land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Jimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.